the presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. From director Laura McGann, The Deepest Breath captures the gripping mix of destiny and danger at the heart of two athletes' undeniable bond. It offers a never-before-seen glimpse into one of the most dangerous sports on the planet. The Daily Beast calls the documentary heart-stopping, expansive, and intimate. Watch The Deepest Breath, now on Netflix. Welcome to Top Ducks. I'm Mike Merrill, and today I'm speaking with R.J. Cutler about his new docuseries on Netflix, Big Vape. R.J. is a prodigious and prolific maker of quality documentaries, and he's been on the show before to talk about the Emmy-nominated Billie Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry, as well as his series on South Florida, celebrity conman and murderer, Murph the Surf. Big Vape, based on the reporting of Time Magazine's Jamie Ducharme, chronicles, as the name suggests, vape company breakout success Jewel, as well as its eventual downfall. But the film, in showing how Jewel followed a pattern of venture capital-backed startups, reveals not only where Jewel went wrong, but questions the broader techno-utopianism of our era. Jewel set out to do something profoundly good, to save millions of lives that otherwise would be lost to the ill effects of inhaling combustible tobacco. But on the way, as they removed the friction, to use a startup term, of consuming nicotine, they opened the door to its widespread use by non-smokers, including underage teens. RJ and I briefly explore the ways this may be analogous to, say, how social media removes some of the friction around communication and how these platforms proved addictive as well, especially for young people. But we leave the door open for your interpretation as well, as does the documentary. If you like this conversation, please do subscribe to the pod. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with RJ Cutler about his new Netflix docuseries, Big Vape. RJ Cutler, welcome back to Top Docs. Thrilled to be here. So today we're talking about Big Vape, and I would describe this documentary as a history of Juul, the vape company that was started by a couple of young idealists trying to fix the real problem of smoking that lost its way in many, many ways. Intrinsically, I'm drawn to this subject for a number of reasons, but one is when my oldest started high school here in San Francisco a few years back, the head of the school gathered us to talk about a very important issue, important, urgent, dangerous problem. And I, I was like, oh, what is, is this meth, fentanyl, sexual harassment, anti-Semitism, which shockingly they'd had some problems with. No, it was vaping. And I was surprised. Uh, is this a huge problem? I, I didn't understand it. What brought you to this subject, RJ? I received a call from my friends at Amblin Television. They had acquired, in advance of its publication, the book Big Vape, which is r reported and written by the Time Magazine health correspondent, Jamie Ducharme. And they encouraged me to read her work. And I did and instantly recognized that this was uh, a story that touched on what I believe to be the central narrative of our moment, which is the unintended consequences of big tech. You know, a, a nerdy kid uh, at Harvard uh, gets dumped by his girlfriend, goes out and tries to prove how cool he can be. And all of a sudden, the rest of us uh, are faced with the end of democracy. You know, and that's the unintended consequences of big tech. The culture and the world is replete with these examples. 
The story of Jewel is another one. These very uh, idealistic, as you say, and talented, incredibly talented design students at Stanford have an idea. They're smokers themselves, and they know that there are 38 million Americans who are smoking combustible cigarettes. They know that there are a billion humans around the planet who are smoking combustible cigarettes. They know that combustion of these cigarettes is what leads more than anything else to disease and death. They've experienced loss firsthand, and it occurs to them that maybe uh, technology can address the problem. And they go out and they buy gum, they do it. They design an, an exquisite device that might very well have achieved their goals had they not been part of a system in which they were rewarded and their company was rewarded for marketing said device to children, yeah. to teenagers, to people who like sexy, cool things. And all, all of a sudden, there was a year-to-year -year increase of youth smoking of 80%. And that's the day you walk into your <laughs> school and they said, my God, 80% more students are smoking than we're smoking a year ago. And, and we have to do something about it. And parents, you should be aware of this because you can't smell it because there's no combustion. Yeah. It's yeah. all steam. And your children are being addicted to nicotine. And by the way, unlike cigarettes, there aren't 20 to a pack. A pack is one thing. It's a pod and you smoke it until it's gone. So you're smoking 20 at a time. That's a great overview of the series. And let's dig into a few points. I will say there's a great tragic arc to the series, maybe multiple tragic arcs to the series. But the very first episode is a cautionary tale on its own. So let's start with James Monsies and Adam Bowen, and they're at Stanford's design school. And the importance of Stanford in Silicon Valley is probably not fully understood by many people. Well, Thank it's you. like USC Film School and George Lucas. Since George Lucas came from USC Film School, all the USC students, they, they, the place wants to stamp them out. I don't mean stamp them out. I mean, you know, produce George Lucas after George Lucas. Stanford aims to produce Steve Jobs after Steve Jobs. He didn't go there, but he's the center of the culture. He's the yeah. figure to whom they all aspire to be. They are involved in this, this thing called design thinking, which sounds generic, but actually is a true methodology. And you dig in on this a bit, which I think is interesting. Sure. I think a more tendentious and more superficial documentary wouldn't. You really dig in and you show kind of the stages, empathize, define, ideate, prototype, test. I really appreciate you spelling this out. As I said, I don't think everyone would. Why did you think it was important to the story to explain this? Because this is where they come from. Again, this is the cultural moment we live in. Everything in your life is defined by the, the work that has been boiled down and now is being studied. And, you know, these guys are not first generation. They're second or third generation. They're kids when the story begins. And it's Steve Jobs who inspires them with his graduation address. So to understand that, to have that contextualized is so critical. On the other hand, we also wanted to make sure that you understood that they were design students. They're not public health students. They're not up at MIT in the cancer lab where engineers and biochemists are working together to solve the crisis, uh, the public health crisis of cancer. They're in Silicon Valley and th their whole model is to create a business 
that can get venture capital that can make them billionaires. So we wanted you to understand that too, because the big question is going to be, can Silicon Valley do what the biotech world is doing up in the New England area? In the case of Juul, the answer is not yet, not really, because the venture capitalists are like, where's my money? And this becomes part of the crisis of late stage capitalism. There had been a number of prior vaporizers, and I'm not into the smoking world, but uh, on the marijuana side of things, I remember these, you know, you would have to like grind. Uh, I had one. I had one of those. I had one of those big. (laughs) Do you remember like grinding the leaves to get them powdery? Yes, but also I had that big plastic bubble that you filled with vape and then you. You know, yeah. I, not that I ever used it, mom. I never used it. <laughs> it's all but legal I had now. one. I had one just because I don't know. So in anticipation of this documentary, beyond design thinking, what they did is they drew upon this vast archive of documents on nicotine addiction that they found just around the corner from where I am right now at UCSF. What did they learn there? They learned that the tobacco companies might have done the very work they were setting out to do d- decades ago. The tobacco companies had approached this, but alternatives to cigarettes, the conundrum for the tobacco companies was that they weren't admitting that there was a need for an alternative to cigarettes. Why would there be a need? Our products are harmless. You know, it's just a coincidence that everyone who smokes them dies. You see the heads of all the companies denying any connection or any knowledge of any connection between smoking and lung cancer or whatever, various forms of cancer, including lung cancer. So they got a hold of all of it. They also got a hold of the blueprint for marketing. Remember Joe Camel? Remember Joe Camel, whose face Mm -hmm. looked like a gigantic penis with two testicles under it? It was not, it was liminal, man. There was nothing (laughs) sub, sub about it. You know, it was crazy. And kids were wearing denim. If you bought enough packs of Camel, You got a little coupon on the back. If you bought enough packs, thousands of packs in, you could send in your coupons and get a denim jacket with Joe Camel's face on it. The Joe Camel image towered over various boulevards across America, I'm sure across the world. So did the Marlboro Man and on and on. So they understood the industry they were delving into. I want to get back to the advertising in a second, but just a little more time on this. You know, the tobacco companies could have gotten there first, but this is classic, right? The incumbent can't innovate for fear of losing the current market. It took outsiders to come in and make something new, again, in the terms of Silicon Valley to disrupt it, to disrupt the industry. And they really leaned into this notion, right? They they used language like, fuck it, ship it. Yes, they did. And move fast and break things. They were molding themselves in Apple's wake. Everything was going to be disrupted. And by the way, they attracted the best and the brightest to get on board their mission. And the best and the brightest did beautiful, extraordinary work. It took some time. There were success and failure. There were sometimes corners were cut and sometimes decisions were made, especially when it came to marketing that were regrettable. And that led to crisis. And ultimately, it was the company's undoing. You show a lot of these early employees, you interview them, and many of them were like Monsies and Bowen smokers, and they really did feel it was a mission-driven company. I I think you are sympathetic to this. They really wanted to help people. 
Yeah, listen, I spent a lot of time. James couldn't go on camera, as we say, and he couldn't speak on the record. But we spoke off the record a great deal. My understanding of his point of view, of his objectives, of his mission is reflected in this series. I must have had half a dozen conversations with him, including one several hour in-person meeting. Again, the design thinking, I think, comes back around to bite them in many ways, right? At its heart, what they're trying to do is give smokers their nicotine without the dangerous effects of inhaling burned tobacco leaves. But what they did really is made the whole experience better. It tastes better, it smelled better, and very importantly, it removed the social stigma that came to envelop smoking over time. And they delivered something that even was more effective in terms of delivering nicotine than cigarettes themselves. So while they set out to replace smoking with something safer, what they actually culminated in was what one of your interviewees calls the century-long effort to produce the perfect engine of addiction. It was the goal of, of the tobacco companies. Well, uh, yes. And obviously the kind of conundrum of the individual cigarette was a problem. And as the product evolved, they had ideas on how to regulate that. But again, unintended consequences. The idea was that they could limit the number of cigarettes you smoked a day, but that would mean that they had the ability to regulate each individual pod. That would mean they could actually increase the amount of nicotine you were getting. And you know, there's unintended consequences. This was something that James worked on a great deal. And ultimately he left the company before that part of the product was uh, fully introduced. We don't spend a ton of time on that in the series, but we do show again, we show that it's, it, it, this is complicated stuff. This is why public health likely should not be driven by the venture capitalists. Likely it should be driven by the scientists and the public health experts. And there was no testing here, but also there was no regulation. Now, this is the history of big pharma. Right and big tech in this country. Regulation comes, it, it's the government's always, their hair's always on fire after the horse has left the barn. Their hair's never on fire before the horse leaves the barn. And once the horse leaves the barn, then they're like, oh my God, we gotta get the horse back. And then you have the earrings, then you have the speech making, then you have the, because the moms aren't screaming until the horse has left the barn. Man, once the horse left the barn here, the, uh, the whole world blew up and the horse leaving the barn, of course, is that children were not only getting addicted to nicotine, but then not because of the jewel, but what at first was feared because of the jewel, children were getting sick, very sick. In your second episode, you bring in the marketers, product design first, marketer second. They roll into the episode. I love how they roll into the episode and the way they must have been experienced by those already working at Jewel. And they come in as this, another pair. In my mind, the dark twins of Monsies and Bowen, Mumby and Bailey. They even have the same initials. And what they propose to do is basically move from selling the product based on features and benefits, which fits nicely with design thinking, to emphasizing lifestyle marketing strategy. Can you explain what this is? Lifestyle marketing is... Calvin Klein showing teenagers in their underwear. I mean, lifestyle marketing is sexy marketing, basically. It's funny that's what it's called, but it's if you see people, sexy young people vaping, you're going to want to vape. And that's what their approach was. It was come as you are. And it was look how cool. And they stumbled into, you know, somebody in the series says this was 
a case of a highly uh, addictive product colliding with a highly addictive culture. I'm not sure they even realized the viral power of Instagram, which was a, a relatively mm. new yeah. uh, platform in that moment. The Jewel was one of the first viral phenomena of the Instagram era. We now know Taylor Swift holds a football player's hand and the world changes. We know the power of the viral phenomena, but in this case, they didn't know. So this approach to selling the Jewel coincided with the arrival of Instagram and you had a phenomenon almost unlike any we had seen. And by the way, because we could go backwards in time as well as telling the story forward, when we go backwards in time, we could find the people who were at the initial Jewel right. event and the very first vapors who were posting about their experience and they're featured in the series. One of the things as we're pointing out is that this move to a lifestyle marketing strategy drove to a younger demographic and one that probably wasn't even smoking. So with this younger audience, we have these sampling trips where they show up in these major urban areas and they give samples to the young people. They take pictures of them, they put them on their social media, but more importantly, these young, influential, attractive kids post showing them with vapes. They use the hashtag recommended by the Jewel marketer so that they all interact and reinforce each other and build upon each other. It's very powerful stuff. There's a number of things they try to do as they realize they have a problem to mitigate this. And one of the things they try to do later on is they try to create marketing campaigns that emphasize images instead of young, cool people looking cool. In these shots and muted colors of a jewel sitting on a blank notebook page with a pair of reading glasses strategically placed nearby with the message being that jewel is for adults doing adult things. But of course, you show the juxtaposition of these two things. Anyone knows this is not what works on social media. There's no comparison. There's another conundrum that comes up here. This is why very early on in the series, someone says, if you want to understand the story of jewel, you got to realize the answer to the question, was it black or was it white, is it was gray. The truth is that this campaign, this ill-advised campaign of, of lifestyle marketing that was going to appeal to teenagers and young people and was going to precipitate a crisis in teen smoking or teen nicotine addiction really was pulled from the market very quickly because they realized almost immediately they were busted by advertising age. They were criticized by all sorts of people and it was working, but it wasn't working. It was a problem for them. They got it out of there. But the news reports and criticisms of that campaign perpetuated the campaign. We're doing okay. it. We perpetuated the campaign by showing the campaign in this series. And this is an argument that they made and they have a point. They took that campaign off the market and they replaced it with a campaign that emphasized harm reduction. And harm reduction was their key objective and what they wanted to do. And they did. But again, there were fan sites. There were all sorts of, again, the horse was just freaking running down the road. One of the criticisms was that this campaign really seemed to mirror earlier tobacco industry campaigns. You focus on Newport campaigns, young people dancing, blowing smoke in a cool way. Well, we don't focus on it, but one of the arguments made, one of the opponents focuses on it very persuasively. 
Bailey suggests that this is ridiculous. He had no time to go through the tobacco industry archives, but right. this seems besides the point to me in some ways, because they're drawing upon these deep archetypes. You talk a bit about this freedom and enslavement, right? One of the moms calls it an exquisite jail. Nicotine addiction is a form of enslavement that's being wrapped up in a kind of a, a envelope. Mean, look, of these, the, here's what they couldn't avoid. They're dealing with an addictive chemical. They were selling a product that is, I, I, by the way, social media is addictive. We know that now. So what are the responsibilities of the creator that is disseminating an addictive product? This is the a question that must be asked by those who create those products. Now, in late stage capitalism, we don't ask those questions. This was the Marxist critique of capitalism. The Marxist solution to ca their critique was throw that out. But the Marxist criticism was dead on, which is that eventually you, you stop caring about the values because the values don't matter if you're making the buck. One of the things we hope the series inspires is consideration of the implications of the manufacturer of a product that involves something addictive or dangerous, something dangerous. You got to care about things beyond the fact that you're the fastest to $10 billion valuation. But in late stage capitalism, we don't care about that. Well, this is a critique at the center of this series. The media critic Taylor Lorenz basically suggests that perhaps Gen Z is even more vulnerable to addiction than other generations. They feel the American dream is dead. Climate change is unavoidable. You'll never buy a house. You can go deep into depth, just going to four years of college. And so they're already sort of addicted to Instagram and that almost the vape is sort of the physical instantiation of a similar thing where you, you tap into this. It's a quick hit, you know, rush of energy, a quick relief. Again, it's this highly addictive product colliding with a highly addictive culture. It's Gen Z perfect. And it was. But there are other things that are. The products that take off resonate with the culture and resonate with the moment. And again, I want to say the question of responsibility is a critical one, and we have to be aware of it. We turn to the government to help with guidance, but you and I are conducting this interview at a moment where the government is a clown show and slipping on a banana peel and landing <laughs> on its bum. No, seriously, you're going to trust the House of Representatives to protect your children against the manufacturers of products that have highly addictive chemicals in them, uh, okay, you can. And it became political theater, and you see that. You see that in this series. You see all of these things. This is why this story is so rich. It's just, it's the perfect story for our moment. It's not just the perfect product for our moment. It's the perfect story because it gets into all of these issues, all of these themes. And the congressmen show up just at the moment. And James is there to say, can we please work together? I'm trying to save a billion lives. Now, some would say, as they do in the series, come on, buddy. If you were trying to save a billion lives, you wouldn't have done this and this. And his company did do those things. But for the people who are coming next, watch this and learn from it. So you don't make the same mistakes that Jewel made. You don't make the same mistakes that were allowed to be made in the name of trying to save a billion lives. In the third episode, you really focus a lot on the young people affected by Jewel. And, and there's this moment where it really seems to come full circle in my mind, where you talk about a, a young man in Miami, he's in high school, 
And he talks about how people meet in the bathroom in a little group and take a quick hit and socialize. And it's part of a ritual. And it really reminded me a lot of Monsies and Bowen meeting outside the uh, Stanford Design School. Yes, sure. <laughs> One of their goals was to create the social aspect of smoking without the harm. That was their, not one of their goals. That was their goal. When they boiled it down, what was it about smoking that they liked? It was the social experience. One person talks about looking at the smoke and how it was meditative for him. Somebody else talks about the fact that it was something you could gather and do together. Passing the peace pipe is a mythic notion. Obviously, the social aspect of smoking is something that is very comforting to humans. <laughs> And they succeeded in their design work at a non-combustion, a vaping device that did replicate the social aspects of smoking. Unfortunately, it also addicted children to nicotine or had the ability to addict children. As Joe recognizes this problem that more and more young people are using their device. They do take a number of moves, but it's almost like their moves make things not necessarily better, in some cases worse. Well, they send people into the schools to advise. Don't send people into the schools to advise. When in doubt, send people not into the schools to advise. The teenagers, that your device is good for their health. Don't. Bad idea. And of course, that, the only upside was it got, suddenly the mothers were like, what the F? They said, what in your health class? Who said what? And then once you get the, once the mothers are mad, you've got a battle on your hands. The jewel representatives go in the classrooms and in one case, they talk to the students about how, well, you know, it's truly is safer and it's the iPhone of vapes, all the things you can get out of the marketing, but the message they try to pass is, but it's for adults, not for kids, which is exactly what you would say if you'd want kids to take it on. Of course, it's the prohibited course. adult thing. Absolutely. And again, unintended consequences, although... That's the kind of thing that you would have expected them to anticipate in advance. But once things go wrong, they always go, you know, once things go sideways in any circumstances, people make all sorts of bad decisions. Another mitigating approach was James Monsies goes back to design thinking. Okay, how can we solve this problem? I know, we'll make a connected device. So yes. users will have to verify their age. And if yes. they don't verify the age, we can shut them off remotely. And Stanley, okay, that sounds good. What's wrong? That sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Stanley Gladstick. Again, what's around the, the corner what's from the me? Good, what's, the, what's the bad side of that? Well, he recognizes the horror of it, right? Um, yeah. That once you start being able to monitor what people yes. are doing, you can monitor just like you do on Facebook. Again, I thought yes. of Facebook over and over again, you know, yeah. just checking your every click and scroll or failure yeah. to click and scroll and then taking sure. a supercharged AI machine to analyze yeah. that and to drive you to further engagement. That's what they could have done, right? What he says, you can make this a million times more addictive than an analog cigarette. Yeah, you can make it, if you can reduce the amount of nicotine that the teen smoker is getting or the adult smoker is getting, you can increase it as well. And once you have the ability to control the device to which people are addicted, your connected phone kind of is that, by the way. You, you oh, absolutely. Are, can be regulated, but you also can get more and more. It's why ownership of these powerful social media platforms, who owns them and what their goals are and what their 
responsibilities are and what their guardrails are is, a, is again, a fundamental question that our society must face and that the jewel is a metaphor for. In the final act here, there's a huge investment by the tobacco company Altria. They buy over a third of the company for billions of dollars, and they also provide you know, marketing, regulatory support. Well, they promise all sorts of things. They promise that they're going to they're going to give up their counter space. They're going to give up that space. You know, when you go to buy a, an a, a O Henry bar at the whatever place that that's also sells tobacco, what you see behind the guy who takes your money for your O Henry bar is a wall of cigarette packs. They were going to give a third of that wall to the jewel. Uh, that didn't really happen. Uh, there were all sorts of things that were promised in that deal that didn't really happen. What I'd like to talk a little bit about is the way you really allow these kind of idealistic people who first started working at Jewel to talk about the dilemma they face, right? Do we sell out to the devil? Or is this a way of getting the resources needed to push that core mission of the company that can be realized otherwise? And you really take it seriously. Again, I think a more tendentious documentary wouldn't really allow this sort of consideration by these people. Can you talk about your choice to really dig in with these people here? Well, I, I mean, if you know my work, it won't surprise you. One of the questions we're asking is, what does it mean to be a citizen at this moment? And so in the universe of this narrative, what does it mean to be someone who shares the hopes and dreams of a company that you're working for when you find out that the company's objective has shifted and it's no longer consistent with your hopes and dreams and the work you're doing? Or do you find out that maybe it is? And in what ways is it? And how do you scrutinize and how do you make your decisions and who are you and how do you find that out? These are the fundamental questions we want asked by any of the narratives we share in filmmaking. This is in a way an opportunity to look into your own soul and imagine that you were one of these employees who had a decision to make. And the decision involves a lot of money. We end one episode on the twist that and then he told us how much money we were going to make. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, right? right? Yeah. Everybody was shaking their fists and saying, what do you mean you sold to Big Tobacco? And then the head of the company at that time turns to everybody and says, and you're all going to get a piece of the pie. And suddenly it gets more complicated. Again, central narrative of our time. And the crisis of late stage capitalism is one of the buckets that this story fits into. And who are you in that? Mm -hmm. Who are you, viewer, in that? I can't ask the question of the viewer unless I'm taking the, the people who are sharing their own personal experiences with us seriously. I'm not interested in the easy, you know, bad, bad. I don't, that doesn't compel me. What compels me is the complexity of human beings trying to make sense of the moment they find themselves in, the relationships they find themselves in the opportunities they find that they have, the crossroads that define their lives, always the choices that they're making and who they are and how they reflect back on who they are. This is consistent with all of the things I've tried to do in my work. This choice they make is obviously an elevated choice, but it's a choice we sort of all make all the time. Balancing yes. a desire to make money with a desire to do good. And that's what great tragedy was, right? The viewers of Oedipus or Hamlet knew they weren't uh, a prince or a king, but they had hard choices to make in their lives. Absolutely. What takes down Jewel, really, and again, Jewel still exists. They still have that beautiful office by the water here in San Francisco. 
But in 2019, the summer of 2019, there is an outbreak of Ivali, which you talked about a bit before, in which vapors, most of the young, had serious lung issues. Yes, but let's be super clear that the, the, the jewel did not cause Ivali. A couple of idiots who were scamming people with vitamin E instead of THC pods were rightly indicted and convicted of poisoning children and damn near killing. THC being the active drug in marijuana, just to be clear, that was being distributed often to be used in the vape devices. Here they were actually substituting or at least accentuating their THC pods with this vitamin E acetate. What's really, I think, interesting is eventually this has caused many people, most people to think that vaping is as bad or worse than smoking regular cigarettes. And some of that seems to me to, again, to have been the results of the fact what you show, which is your the young subjects who, who are dying in many cases or about to die are documenting it and they're putting it out on social media and all these young people can see this in real time. Yes. The tools actually redounded back on to Jewel in some way. Yes. The world they succeed in is the same world as the world that they face existential crisis. In. I don't see it as a particular irony. I just see it as a fact of the event. This is a very complex subject. Just hearing you describe what happened makes me want to say years of study would be necessary to really understand, will be necessary to really understand the health risks of a device like this. Now, right. if they can mitigate those health risks, if they can limit the amount of nicotine that is distributed, if they can limit the amount you can smoke at a time, if they can keep these things out of the hands of youth smokers, teenagers, if they can keep people who aren't yet smoking or discourage it with the power of advertising and marketing, somebody in the series says, then maybe one day your grandmother right. will smoke one of these things instead of cigarettes and she'll live an extra decade. Wow, how fantastic. One day the work that James and Adam did may very well lead us to overcoming the scourge of big tobacco. Wouldn't that be great? Now, it may be naive for me to say it. It may never happen, but it could. And we're closer to it happening now for the work that they did in creating this device. This does not separate it from all the other things that we're saying or that happened, but it is a fact and it's an important fact. We aren't going to be able to adjudicate the long-term health effects of vaping nicotine, but if you aren't currently smoking either a vaporizer or cigarettes, don't start. <laughs> don't start. And if you are a long-term smoker who can't quit, ask your doctor if moving to a vaporizer might be an appropriate step. That's what I would say at this point. That's what we know. Thank you for spelling it out even more. And those who are interested, the documentary goes into more detail uh, on this. You brought this up a little bit, but let me really ask you this directly, which is one of your subjects notes that Jewel has been the beneficiary of an incredible amount of publicity. Even if it wasn't all positive, it still brought a lot of attention. And as you noted, she suggests that even your documentary showing the Jewel marketing campaign could get in front of young people. And as much as we would like young people to watch documentaries, were you at all concerned about this possibility? And what steps did you take if you had any concerns to mitigate that? 
I'm not the distributor of the film. And Netflix, I know, it takes care to clearly identify programming and its age appropriateness. I know as the father of three children that the Netflix experience is completely different for my children than it is for me. So there's that. I kept that moment in the film. I don't even mean I kept it. There was no discussion of not having it, but I included that moment. That's a choice that I made. I want us to be identified as sharing this material that otherwise might not have been shared. I think that the filmmakers have to be responsible for that, but I think it was important to share it and I stand by it entirely. I also know that I've shown parts of this series to my daughter who's eight so that she might understand that this is a dangerous thing. And she's found it, you know, she likes my work. What can I say? There's many ways of reading this story. And in the course of the series, four-part series, people present it different ways and read it different ways. And I, I really appreciate you allow this multitude of voices. But I wanted to ask you about it and ask you in this way, do you think the story of Jewel is a tragedy? And if so, in what manner or manners is it a tragedy? I think it's exactly what I, you know, and I love our conversations. I really do. And I love this podcast and I'm so grateful. And I speak on behalf of the entire uh, <laughs> documentary community and our vast viewership a a a as well. We love this podcast. But the question of how do I reduce my four well, hour, the, I have, I, it took me four, exactly four hours to answer that question because it's such a complex story. And to find the answer to that question, I encourage your podcast audience to tune into Netflix and watch Big Vape starting on October 11th. It's a barn burner. It's a real powerful story. We're really proud of it. It's style, it's substance. As I've said a number of times, it is the story of our time. Yeah, I'd say, you know, turn upon turn, constantly seeing this group of people who are trying to do good uh, confound themselves, as you note, often driven by the desire to get to a profitable stance. RJ, thank you for the series. I think it is an important look, certainly at this ongoing health crisis, but also, as you know, it's more deeply about the dangers for looking for easy answers in technology. And while I'm still personally, a, generally a tech optimist, and I have worked in tech companies, I should say, including startups, I don't think we have to look too far to see some of the very powerful, potentially dangerous innovations heading our way that, well, could go very wrong. Uh, of course. I mean, what's going to happen when you have that chip inside your body that is going to tell your doctor the second your blood pressure gets too high or worse, the second your artery gets too much calcium in it? That chip is a lifesaver. That chip sounds fantastic. Be careful, right? <laughs> Absolutely. What else will that chip? What else will that chip be communicating? And what else will the communication back be able to do? We live in interesting times. We Thank do. you, RJ. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. You look great. Thank you. I feel great. Life is good. We're in the home stretch on on the Elton John film, so very excited right. to be sharing that in the year to come. Similarly, the Martha Stewart film. Very excited to be sharing that in the year to come. And sheer height which I produced along with my colleagues at This Machine and at NBC Studios. And the filmmaker, Nicole Noonan, is part of the award season right now. We're so proud of that movie. And it remains a thrilling time to be making documentary films. And I'm so grateful 
this moment in our work in the documentary world, perhaps we've spoken about it in the past, but this moment reminds me of, of what the 70s was like for narrative filmmakers. It's just, I, I see film after film, I, I, it's just, I'm going to see The Mission tonight. I saw Davis's film still the other night and was so deeply moved. It happens again and again. What a, an exciting time and what an amazing community of artists to be a part of. And we've had Nicole on the pod, Davis as well, and we will be talking to Jesse and Amanda about the mission coming up. We've had a few of your hidden gems in the past, Dream Deceivers and Crisis. Goodness gracious, if you haven't seen Turn Every Page, last year's film about the legendary editor Robert Gottlieb, go watch it now. What a treat you have in store for you. A film that will fill your heart and a love letter to New York City and a love letter from a daughter to a dad.